You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Thank you and welcome to another podcast with the RN Mentor. Uh, I am today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Diana Mason. Uh, she is Senior Policy Service Professor at the Center for Health Policy and Media Engagement at George Washington University School of Nursing, a Professor Emerita at Hunter College, where she held the Rudin Endowed chair and founded the Center for Health, Media, and Policy. She is the Deputy Program Director for the International Council of Nurses, Global Nursing Leadership Institute, a past president of the American Academy of Nursing, and former editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Nursing. Uh, she she has produced uh, and hosted radio programs on health and health policy since 1985 and currently hosts Health Cetera in, in uh, um, Catskills on WIOX Radio. Uh, she has served as the only health professional on National Advisory Committee for Kaiser Health News since its inception in 2009. Dr. Mason is the lead editor of the book Policy and Politics in Nursing and Healthcare, now in its eighth edition, and a blog on policy in, in, for Health Cetera and JAMA News 4. Uh, she is the principal investigator on a replication of the 1998 Woodhall study on nurses and the media published in 2018 in the Journal of Nursing Scholarship and an additional analysis of journalists' experiences with nursing nurses, with using nurses uh, as sources in health news stories, including a policy published in the American Journal of Nursing. She has hundreds of publications to her name, a PhD from the New York University, and two additional honorary doctorate degrees. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mason. Thank you very much, Ali. Uh, let me just say that it's called Health Cetera, like et cetera, Health Cetera. Health Cetera. Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you for correcting health me on that. Cetera in the cats. Uh, thank you so much. Um, so uh, so that's what, you know, uh, I always... Uh, Love to hear, you know, reading the bios on my guests and talking to my guests primarily because you you are so accomplished and there's a couple of things right off the bat that I know I want to talk to you about. Uh, I've mentioned to you before I've uh, we have spoken a few times and by coincidence met in the elevator uh, at an event uh, several years ago. Um, so thank you for being on the show. Um, I want to start with, like I do with all my guests, talking about uh, your decision to choose nursing as a career path. How did it come about and what put you on the path that you are now? Well, Ali, as a child, um, I was probably five years old, maybe four. 
within a couple years, I had had a tonsillectomy and what later I found out was an unnecessary appendectomy. And so those two surgical experiences exposed me to healthcare and to nurses. And I can remember particularly uh, when my tonsils were out, you know, your, your, your throat is sore, you're scared, you're hurting, and the ice cream made it feel so good. My throat felt so much better. And then I, I wanted more ice cream. And there was a nasty nurse who said, no, you can't have more ice cream. And then there was a nurse who came in and, of course, we can get you more ice cream. And I thought, okay, there's the bad nurse and there's the good nurse. And I want to be the good nurse. And, and remember, so I, you know, I was born in 1948, so you can figure out how old I am. And in those days, women were largely either nurses or teachers. And so I had grown up thinking I was going to be a nurse. And then I got in high school and I said to my father, well, I think I want to go to medical school. And he said, no, you know, you'll go to school and then you'll get married and have babies and it'll be a waste to go to medical school. And I always thought about that and thought how disappointed I was that my father didn't give me the encouragement. But in retrospect, it was the right decision for me. It was the right thing to go for nursing. Uh, I've had a fabulous career in the profession. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I was not the best of students in my undergraduate program. So all of those students who are struggling <laughs> know that uh, there is life after a uh, school of nursing. And, um, I mean, I, I, I passed, I did well, I, I, I did well until my senior year, and then I discovered there was life outside of the school of nursing. So, uh, that's what led me to that decision, and, uh, I was fortunate to go to, my father really actually selected my school for me, too. Um, he, we did look at a couple of schools, and the one that he really recommended and that I liked was West Virginia University. They had a very new school of nursing. It had opened, I believe, in 1960. So I, would, I, was, I was in the class of 66. And they had been written up because their curriculum was so innovative. The dean, the new dean there, had gathered some both experienced and young uh, nurse educators and said, we can build this the way we want. So let's be creative. And it was the most innovative curriculum I've ever seen. So we had transitions of care when I was in school. We followed people prenatally, women prenatally. We were on call for when they went into labor and delivery and followed them in and were in the labor and delivery if we could be, and then postnatally on the unit and then made home visits. We had both community psychiatry and inpatient psychiatry. We did the same thing with surgical patients, saw them pre-op, would go into the surgery for our, our observation surgical experience, and then take care of them post-op. And the other thing was that we followed a developing family through the public health department the whole time we were in school. So you got to see what happened to children as they developed, so that child development piece really came alive. You also got to see the struggles that families deal with, particularly families in poverty, and these were families in poverty. I mean, it was just a brilliantly designed curriculum. Unfortunately, when that dean left and they brought a new dean in, she changed it all back to the traditional med surge, et cetera. So it's a shame, and um, 
it's actually written up for those people who are interested in curricula. It was in, I think, Nursing Outlook, um, probably in the late 60s, uh, maybe early 70s. And I think it was the 60s, so it was called the West Virginia Plan. And very innovative. So, um, yeah, so that was what got me uh, on my road uh, into nursing. And so there were five children in my family, and my father was uh, an engineer, uh, but he couldn't support five kids to go to college. And he was first in his generation to go to college and had such a wonderful experience that he wanted his children to have the same experience. So he said, you know, I'll pay your first or your second and maybe maybe the first two years of your education. But then during that time, you have to figure out how you're going to get the rest of it paid for. So he took me down to the Army recruiting station when I was 18 years old and said, OK, here's how you're going to get your whole school paid for. You're going to sign here. And I did. I thought, well, I'll have a guaranteed job. Why not? But these were during the 60s. And I actually, uh, you know, my senior year was out protesting the Vietnam War. And then I had to go into the Army Nurse Corps afterwards. So, but it was, it, it was really great because it did pay for my education. And then I got the GI benefit to pay for my master's and part of my doctorate. So um, I graduated from nursing school and went right into the U.S. Army Nurse Corps for fun travel and adventure at Fort Dix, New Jersey, doing critical care. Uh, that's, 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 that's outstanding. Uh, so I always would love to hear, uh, actually, you're, uh, you're not the first guest that you know, I've, I have found that was a veteran. Um, so thank you for your service. Uh, uh, I wasn't now, a good fit though, Ollie. <laughs> I wasn't a good well, match. <laughs> it was uh, good. Yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, a good experience. I, I, but but you know, it, it, it opened some doors for you, which is I think uh, you know. I always like to look at the brighter side of things. Uh, uh, I, I thought I actually I joined I joined the Navy uh, uh, right after high school. And uh, I didn't think I was going to be a good fit, but uh, 10 years later, uh, there I was. Uh, but I, I, again, it opened up a lot of doors for me. And I, I, I found out things about myself that I would have otherwise uh, may not have uh, found out. And uh, uh, like I said, it, opened, it has opened up uh, so many doors. I can't really complain. And it was a good experience for me. I, ne I needed it. Let's just yes. put it that way. Yes. Uh, so, uh, so, I mean, I mean, the fact that you, you were in a program that was so innovative, uh, and again, one of the things I love to learn about is uh, programs that aren't like necessarily like in, in the 2000s or the 21st century uh, that were innovative uh, as the program that you uh, started out in. And it's unfortunate uh, people come in and put things back to what they think should be versus how they could be. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. Uh, now you went into the Army Nurse Corps, and uh, how was your? Ex uh, I know you said you weren't a good fit, but uh, how do you think that that may have shaped your uh, nursing career? Because uh, you came out, went into your master's, and well, that's a it's a good question because just as you said, I, I, I it that experience taught me a lot about myself. So I think it's a statement about. 
how even when we're in situations that we feel like this is not where I want to be, there are learnings that we can draw from it that can really help us in our journey through this life. So I was put on a medical and coronary intensive care unit, and I thought I was a crackerjack critical care nurse. You know, I was teaching by the time I was finished, my did my three years. The last year of that, I was the assistant head nurse of the unit. I was teaching uh, arrhythmia classes to other, other nurses uh, in the hospital. And again, thought I was just this crackerjack nurse. But at the same time, my, you know, so it is that mentality of the critical care nurse is the super nurse, right? And my father was going through some major health problems, and he ended up dying in 1978 at the age of 58. So he, he had a really tough time as I was going into my career. And after I left the Army, I went out to St. Louis, um, ended up in teaching in a diploma program and going back to get my master's degree. And my experiences with my father taught me that you can have all the high-tech stuff in the world. And what really matters to people is being surrounded by the people they love, having, being in comfort, having comfort, not, not dying in pain, you know, dying with respect, with dignity, with comfort as much as possible, and really having the basics of care. Somebody who knows how to give a bath in a way that just makes you feel relaxed, makes you feel whole um, and comforted. And so I started to question that super nurse image. And here I was thinking I was going to be doing, you know, continue to do this super nurse stuff. And it gave me pause and it made me realize that some of the basics that I learned about how to care for people was what really mattered. And even today during COVID, you see the images of all of that machinery and nurses managing all of that machinery. But what you hear from the stories of patients and their families is that the nurse got that iPad and let me talk to my loved one before he died. Or for the loved one that I, I felt like I wasn't alone. And things like uh, it, nurses implementing what's called the pause, where when a patient dies because the code wasn't successful, instead of everybody just leaving and running to the next thing, the team pauses for about 45 seconds and reflects on that this was somebody's mother, brother, friend, sister, parent, um, colleague. And they reflect on, so the person's humanity, and they reflect on that this team did everything that it could to try to save this person. And while it wasn't successful, we all will die and we have to honor this moment. Or people just pause and deep breathe and reflect on how they're feeling and what they did, whatever they want. And the research to date shows that it helps to build resiliency. So it's those moments, it's those moments where we focus on what really matters. And the machines matter but not more than that human connection. So that's part of what I learned from my father's experience and taking care of him was that it really mattered when nursing care was good and people listened to family members and they cared about pain management 
and they cared about comfort. So um, that that really that it's the combination of the personal and the professional nursing experience. And then I went to I moved to New York City, and I was teaching at Hunter then. Uh, when I first went to New York, I, I didn't have a doctorate, so I could only stay there two years, even though I finished my career there of sorts. Um, and so when I went to Hunter, I started a private practice with two other nurses. And we shortly found out, they were faculty, we all believed that as t educators, we needed to be walking the talk. We needed to practice whatever it was we were teaching. And so we started this private practice and found out we couldn't get third-party reimbursement. We couldn't get paid by an insurance company for what we did. We couldn't even get corporate insurance. There was no insurance company that would cover us as a corporation. So we had to function as a partnership, which means that each person is liable for the other's work. And while we trusted each other, we didn't want that kind of liability. And so it ended up that I had the, took the practice and just kept the practice for a number of years. It was not a big practice. I would see people in their homes, et cetera. So um, that got me, actually raised my interest in the political and the fact that nursing work is highly political. Um, we just don't often recognize it as such. So I, it, it's actually an important message that I'd like to convey is that for those people who feel, oh, political stuff is not for me. Everything that you're doing every day has a political context to it. And if you don't recognize that, you're going to be at the mercy of everybody else who does and does whatever they can to influence what you're doing. Thank you for uh, bringing that component up. Actually, it's something I wanted to really uh, talk to you about. We are recording this during uh, the COVID uh, pandemic. And I want to uh, talk to you about uh, uh, nurses in media, because I know that's an area that you focus on. You are part of the uh, uh, the latest Woodhall study. Uh, uh, now, now, if you can kind of shed some light as far as uh, what that study uh, originally was, the the new study, and uh, how do you think nurses can engage more on media and the political side of the arena? Because I know so many nurses don't realize uh, how much influence they have. Uh, and uh, if you can shed some light on that. Yeah. Uh, so let me preface this by saying that, um, you know, for, since the Gallup survey of the public around the public's level of trust of various professions. Since they've been doing that survey, nurses have been the most trusted profession every year except September 11th, September 11, 2001. <laughs> and that was because firefighters topped, topped the list for obvious reasons. So we have this enormous public trust, um, but we don't use it very well. And we don't take advantage of it very well. Uh, I sometimes think that we're held in high esteem because we're seen by as sort of powerless and so we're not going to put our own interests before, before our patients, which isn't always true. Um, so, um, so with that in mind, uh, I had an opportunity to do a radio program in, um, in a, at a radio station in New York City called WBAI. It's a little bit of a crazy radio station, community radio station, but my colleague Barbara Glickstein and I 
were brought on as guests on the only nurse-produced program in the city that Diane Mancino, the CEO of uh, the National Student Nurses Association, and another nurse, Paula Tedesco, had started when the station reached out to the local nurses association and said, could you do a program on women's health? And they came on, they did a great job, and the station said, would you do a monthly program for us? So Diane and Paula did that. And then they brought, a couple years later, brought Barbara and I, we had been guests on their program, and they asked us if we would like to do it with them. And so there was a nice transition. This is succession planning and the importance of succession planning. If Diane and Paula had just walked away from it, we would not have probably had another nurse-produced program at that radio station. So instead we transitioned. They gradually left, and we kept it going. And kept it going until just a few years ago. I'm pretty much living upstate New York. Uh, and so I've, I'm doing a the Health Center program up in the Catskill Mountains now. And so I had this eye towards media and the value of nurses' voices in media, the fact that we know how to talk to the public much better than physicians do. We know how to talk to that public, but we are often afraid to use our voice. But it's not just on us. And so the original Woodhall study was commissioned by Louise Warner, who was a friend of, of Nancy Woodhall, who was one of the founding managing editors of USA Today. And Nancy was a real advocate for women in the newsroom. And she had a health problem that nobody could figure out what it was. And a nurse said to her one day, you need to go have this done. I don't know what this was, but some kind of test. She did, and she was found to have cancer. She was dead within a year. But after that experience, she thought, my gosh, why aren't people listening to nurses? And she realized, we pr I, I don't recall hearing nurses' voices in media. So Lu Louise Warner, her friend, commissioned this study uh, at the University of Rochester to look at the extent to which nurses were used as sources in health news stories in leading newspapers, weekly magazines like Time and Newsweek, and in our own trade publications like Modern Healthcare. And what that study found in 1997 was that nurses were cited in, the, in these health news stories in only 4% of these health news stories. Now, they were cited 1% in 1% of the news weeklies and 1% of our own trade publications. In modern healthcare, they found that nurses were used as sources. Now, this is our own industry, right? 0.6% of the time. So, they, Sigma actually published this study, and uh, Sigma Theta Tau, the Nursing International, the Nursing Honorary Society, and afterward, they held some regional meetings at which they would invite a couple nurses on a panel and a couple uh, journalists. And they asked me to be on the panel for the Northeast region. And there were uh, these local TV uh, reporters who came on to the panel. And what they would do in these sessions would they'd report on the findings, which the reporters would not have heard before. And they then get rather mortified. And these were two women on my panel. They were rather mortified and embarrassed that 
when they realized, no, they've never used a narcissist source. So it started to raise awareness and raise consciousness. But the effort didn't continue. And so then I was involved with the Future of Nursing report in, in 2010, 2011, and, and was involved after that as a strategic advisor for the Campaign for Action to implement the recommendations. And I thought, you know, I'll bet you this is increasing nursing's visibility in the media. And I wanted to do a follow-up study. And so finally was able to piece together the funds. And I worked with the Berkeley Media Studies Group that does these kinds of analyses all the time. And uh, we replicated the original Woodhull study and found that nurses were cited in only 2% of those sources. Now, the difference between now and 2017 and, and 1997, 20 years apart, the difference in those, two, those 20 years was not statistically significant. So we're not saying things have gotten worse. We're just saying nothing has changed. What did improve a little bit was that the news weeklies were now up to 2% instead of 1%. So, so that really, and when nurses were cited, it was always about, almost always about the profession, things like advanced practice nursing or violence against nurses, that kind of thing, violence in the workplace. So, so the real question is, why, why is this so? So my colleague Barbara Glickstein and I did a qualitative study with a, a nurse, Christy Westfan, who was a doctoral student actually at UCLA at the time. And she worked with us on this study, and we interviewed uh, 10 health reporters and asked them about their experiences with using nurses as sources. And this was, to me, the richer part of this work that we did. It really provides direction on what we have to do to improve the situation. And what our overriding theme was it, uh, that there, there is bias about women, about nurses and about positions of authority in healthcare that get in the way of using nurses as sources. These biases really affect who is acceptable as a source. So drilling down on that a little bit, what we found is that most journalists didn't really understand what nurses do. And I do think the COVID experience, as nurses talk about what they do, and there's so much on the media, about what nurses are doing and showing them and hearing from them uh, what they're doing, that I think it is helping to raise awareness. Um, but they also don't understand our degrees and all the initials after our name, et cetera. So we've, we've got to do a better job of educating people about what nurses do. So that was one piece. A, a, a second piece was that if they interviewed a nurse for a story, they would have to justify that with their editor. Now, there, so, this, so this bias in the newsroom is real, and it's a bias against women in positions of authority. Why? So somebody, somebody told us that they interviewed a nurse anesthetist for a story about uh, anesthesia, and the editor said, what, you couldn't find an anesthesiologist to interview in the whole country? And what they didn't realize is a nurse anesthetist was the first person who gave anesthesia, Nurses gave it before a physician did. And that there are more nurse anesthetists by far than anesthesiologists in the country, and they're delivering most of the anesthesia in this country. So 
so that kind of bias uh, also exists. There's also biases around their style guides. They don't. They won't put RN after your name because that's not an accepted, approved credential by most style guides. So lots of those biases. But there was a, a really aha moment for us. The other theme that came through is that when journalists go to a hospital or other healthcare organization or a university with a school of nursing, and they ask for a source on a health-related story. They are never given a nurse. And even if they ask for a nurse, they may not be given a nurse. So there's a lot of work we have to do sort of up the chain of command with telling those CEOs of hospitals, you want a nurse out there as a spokesperson. You know, <clears throat> how often do you see the chief nurse being a spokesperson on a health story? It's almost never. They'll roll out a physician. So we've got a lot of work to do there with PR people. We need the CEO of the hospital to tell the public relations person, you need to start using nurses as sources. We've got great nurses here. Work with the chief nurse to figure out who to put out there for what. So that's work we can do. But the other thing they shared with us is that we never hear from nurses. We never hear from nursing associations. We don't get the same kind of press releases that JAMA gives us and the New England Journal of Medicine gives us and the Lancet gives us. We don't get that from nursing. And, and so we've got to be more proactive with getting the word out about what it is that's newsworthy that nurses and nursing are doing. So there's a lot of direction there. And, and, and I think with the younger generation, they're much more ready to step up and speak out. And kudos to those of you who are willing to do that. If you're scared of doing that, you should get some media training. And Barbara and I have done this media training and we get it. We understand your fears, but uh, there are ways to get over those fears. And, and with media training, they'll give you tools to feel like you're more in control. So I want to encourage nurses to absolutely uh, speak out. And for those who say, well, my institution won't let me, you can speak as a, uh, as a nurse without identifying your affiliation. You can say, I'm Diana Mason. I'm a nurse in the Northern Catskills or Central Catskill region without saying I'm working at a particular hospital. So there are ways around it. But we also need leaders who will step up and say, it's time for nurses to be spokespeople on these important issues that the public needs to hear about. Okay, so I, I understand the uh, lack of uh, nurses being uh, put out there for media. My other question for you is social media has played such a huge component of getting information out. I see a lot of nurses out there uh, that are sharing information. Uh, do you think there's a, also a bias in social media? Because I see physicians all the time get like the blue check mark or the verified source. But I don't see, I hardly ever see it on nurses. Uh, do you think that same bias you're talking about in the regular, what we consider media is also in social media? I do. Um, you know, I think the bias is real about, in this country, still a gender bias. There is still that gender bias. And and so it, we're still predominantly women. I think the, we're 88% women still. 
And so that bias is there. It's real. Uh, also, many people, the public view of nurses, although I hope that's changing, is that, you know, we, we care. Well, they don't understand what care means. They think care means you're being nice. They don't know that if you're really caring, you're using, it, it's an intellectual, it's intellectual work. It's emotional work. It's, it is comfort work. Uh, you're bringing your whole self to this. And I would argue is so much more demanding uh, than the public realizes. Um, anybody who goes to nursing school knows they didn't have a clue <laughs> about how difficult and challenging it would be. Uh, and so it speaks to the fact that we've got to do a much better job of, of trying to get the public to understand what we do. But I, I think what's really important, too, is for nurses to start following journalists and other thought, and thought leaders and to be putting their their ideas, their thoughts out there carefully. Uh, always you want to respect HIPAA and make sure that you're not violating confidentiality of patients and privacy rights of patients. But um, certainly, uh, the, I think being out there in in the space of Twitter and following journalists, they they do pay attention to story ideas. You can always uh, do a direct message uh, tweeting or Facebooking uh, a journalist and say, I have this story idea if you're interested. And they may not be, but they may be. So my colleague Barbara Glickstein and I have been feeding some of our, we're both members of the Association for Healthcare Journalists. So we have lots of connections with health reporters and journalists. And so we reach out to some of our colleagues regularly. Uh, around different stories, including the the one, um, actually, I'm not going to remember her name, but she posted something on Twitter about hydroxychloroquine and the fact that she was taking it for lupus and now she couldn't get it. And we really highlighted that to a colleague at ProPublica, and they did a whole story on that. And she was quoted. Uh, are you talking about Dr. Uh, Dr. Valdez? Yes, yes, Annabelle did. Uh, I, I know her through Twitter, and, and she did the, uh, the, uh, the uh, one of my first podcasts uh, with uh, Dr. Walker. So, uh, so yes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, um, I mean, from, from, from a perspective of nursing, uh, especially someone who hasn't done necessarily any work with media, um, I think it's important for nurses to be involved with social media and kind of seeing what's uh, trending. I think that always helps. Uh, but for somebody who's looking to um, get into more policy and media work, other than following other me uh, media individuals, uh, how can they be more proactive in getting um, content out there? Well, I, so we don't have to wait for journalists to come to us. You can use social media to push your ideas out. You can also write op-eds. Now, right now, it's a very challenging time to get an op-ed placed. Uh, everybody's writing op-eds and submitting them, and uh, so it's hard. However, particularly once COVID dies down a little bit, um, it'll be easier again. Uh, and particularly with regional papers, you should be targeting regional papers. Um, you know, real tough to get in the Washington Post and the New York Times, but, um, you know, go to the, some of those regional papers that look for commentaries. 
So do an op-ed, and there is a thing called the Op-Ed Project, and they have various online sessions now, and we've got some nurses. Uh, so Rush University, the dean at the School of Nursing there, um, Marquis, and I'm going to block his last name. <laughs> anyway, he's, I think, stepped down as dean, hired uh, the op-ed project to come into the School of Nursing and work with faculty in particular on writing op-eds. And Mona Chattel, who's now at Jones Hopkins, has been one of the people who has been out there writing op-ed after op-ed after op-ed. So there are things like that that can help to give you the tools to write good op-eds. You can also blog. I blog for JAMA. And when I do those blogs, sometimes they publish them in the journal as well. Gives it more pickup. But that's that's a way to get your thoughts out there. Now, I'm, I'm blogging for JAMA on policy, and that's, that's why I blog for JAMA, is to highlight policy issues. But I also bring a whole policy or, uh, you know, a, a lens to that work that some of their other bloggers don't bring. Um, you know, I'm, I'm there with some, some real heavyweights, you know. A guy, David Cutler, who was on Obama's transition team, he's a health economist, Aaron Carroll, who writes, uh, he's got a contributing editor column in the New York Times. Really good guy. So, and, and Gail Walensky used to head up Medicare under the first Bush administration. So I'm like, what am I doing here? And then I realized I have perspectives they don't. And so I do blog and uh, there, and I'm very pleased with the blogs that end up there. Um, I think it's really important to make sure there's that nursing lens and nursing voice there. So you can blog, uh, write commentaries, contact a radio station. I, one of the roles I'm playing during COVID, so I, I'm, not, I'm not able to go back to practice, but I'm on the board of the local hospital and I volunteer in the lobby to screen people. So I'm trying to do my piece, screen people when they come in for fever and symptoms of COVID. But I also volunteered at the radio station to be a point person for them on COVID-19. So I've gone from doing a one-hour program every other week to a two-hour program every other week, a two-hour special. And I go on a, somebody else's morning show every Tuesday morning. And I'm on that program for 20, 25 minutes talking about whatever they want to talk about. So it's, I don't have to be an, I'm not an expert in infectious disease. I'm not an expert on COVID, but I know the I'm, I'm more educated on this. I keep myself educated on it. And I know what the public needs to know. And that's the hat that I wear. What, when I'm reading something, what does the public need to understand about this? So um, those are roles where we can step up and offer our expertise and offer to support our communities as they try to cope with this. Um, and, and I would say look to do a radio program yourself. Many of these community radio stations would welcome a, uh, a program by a nurse. And do you have a radio station at uh, Cal State? Uh, we do. We do have a radio station on Cal State. Yes. So that's an opportunity. You know, at some schools, we've gotten uh, nursing students involved in doing health spots on university and college uh, radio programs. So, yeah, there's some possibilities there. Actually, when you're talking about uh, uh, writing op-eds for regional papers, my mind did wander to uh, 
not only the CalCid LA paper, but also our radio station. So, uh, so yeah, that's definitely an opportunity for nursing students and nurses and faculty to get involved with. So thank you. Um, now, uh, as you're talking about all this stuff, uh, my mind is wandering back to uh, how your career set you up where you are now. And in my book, you're a heavy hitter. So I don't know uh, how, how you see yourself, but you're definitely a heavy hitter on, in my book. Uh, how do you, uh, going back to your career, how do you think you prepared uh, to be where you are now? Because a lot of people say, oh, it was by accident. But I always like to say, tell people they had to take certain steps to make themselves, uh, put themselves in the positions that they were in during their career. How do you think you prepared yourself um, to uh, put yourself in strategic positions, you know, uh, even, um, you know, like things like, uh, you know, um, to head up the American Academy of Nursing or, uh, you know, be the editor for American Journal of Nursing. So those items, how did you prepare yourself? So let me say that I, we are all different. And as my father, a few months before my father died, he said to me, you've always been very special. He said, you're somebody who, as a little girl, everybody would be getting out of the house to go to school and you would be, your coat would be half on and off. Your lunch pail would be ready to come open, but you'd always get out the door. And that mental image of me as somebody who perseveres and who's, I'm not going to be left behind. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do my thing when I get out there. I don't have to be like everybody else, but I'm going to do what moves me. And I think we have to tap into who are we as individual people? What are our strengths? What are our fears? And I was just thinking the other day, I mean, I, I can talk to anybody now, but there was a time when I remember and I was uh, a young nurse and I was having to make phone calls to people I didn't really know who were heavyweights in my book. And it was very scary to me. And I thought back to that time and I thought, my gosh, why was I scared? And again, it's that experience and it's saying, I, I, okay, I'm, I'm not comfortable with this, but I'm going to do it. I, I can get through this. So the, I can remember walking to the radio station like three months in, into doing my own program and having an anxiety attack. And I thought, Diana, breathe, do your breathing exercises. I knew how to do relaxation breathing and I was breathing. And later on, I realized that those nerves, the anxiety is good. It gives you energy. If I'm too calm, I'm flat. I'm, I, I don't have the energy in, in my presentation. And so it's recognizing that anxiety can serve you well. You just need to use your tools of relaxation and, and, and learn from it. I've made some terrible mistakes in my career, but you reflect on it, you learn, on, you learn about it. Some of those experiences, so the AJN piece, <clears throat> my experience with AJN came about, uh, and this is actually a pretty good lesson. Uh, when I was on the editorial board and I thought the journal was going down the tubes, it was really dumbing down to nursing and nurses. 
And I went to an editorial board meeting. I came late. It was at an A&A convention. I came in late and had to leave early. So I come in, I sit down, and I can only stay a little while. And they're talking about, you know, what they're doing over the next year. And I said, you know, I have to go soon. And so I just want to say a few things. And I said, and I said what was on my mind. I said, I think the journal has to quit dumbing down to nurses, and it needs a graphic overhaul. It visually is dumbing down. And I thought, okay, they're going to kick me off this board. And I thought, it's okay. They can kick me off. Not being on the editorial board of AJN is not the end of my life. But I have to be true to what I have to say. Um, and so they didn't kick me off. And months later, they called me to apply for the position. And I was in a tenured position at Pace University. And I thought, why do I want to do this? And I thought long and hard about it. And so one of the other premises that I really hold on to is that if you're going into a position, you need to have a vision for the work you'll do. You need a vision that can guide you, keep you going, uh, that can keep you from um, get going astray almost, you know, sort of losing focus. So I thought long and hard about what, my vision would be for the journal. And I can remember going for my interview with Jay Lippincott, who is the great, great grandson of the Lippincott that started Lippincott Publications and published the first AJN so many, uh, more than a hundred years ago. And he was the president of the company at the time. And he said to me, so why do you want to be editor of the American Journal of Nursing? And I said, I don't want to be editor of the American Journal of Nursing as it is. I only want to be editor of a transformed journal. And it needs badly transformed in the nursing community. You are losing readership, you're dumbing down to nursing, and visually this is, it's not where it needs to be. Second, other health professionals should be reading us. We read other health professionals' journals, why aren't they reading us? And third, uh, instead of turning on the nightly news and hearing this month in the Journal of the American Medical Association, I want to hear this month in the American Journal of Nursing. And so if that's what my vision would be, and if that's not what you want to do, I'm not the person for the job. And we talked a little bit. He said, I'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. He called me the next, they called me the next day and said they wanted me to offer me the job. Now, I go to my first, so <laughs> it's another lesson. I was in a tenured position, and I thought, do I really want to give this up and go take this job, and who knows how it would go? So I proposed that I take a leave of absence from my, my PACE position, and for a year, I see if this is a good fit for me, and they would see if I'm a good fit for them, meaning the journal. And at the end of that year, or anywhere along the way, if either of us decided it's not a good fit, we say, fine, thank you very much. So I had that year as negotiating power, if you will. I had my first meeting with this the heavy hitters in the company, the head of advertising, the head of marketing, the publisher, Jay Lippincott, uh, this continuing education head, and on and on. And I walked in with a one-pager on the vision for AJN and a mission statement and some objectives. And I passed it around, and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, nobody had anything to change in it. 
I said, fine. I said, so you all approve it? Yes. And so that was the mantra. I had that vision of mission statement that was posted up on the wall. And anytime we had a meeting, we would refer back to as this part of our vision and mission. So when I had a battle with the head of advertising around whether editorial made the decision about what went on what page or advertising made the decision, I won. When I, we did the first budget and they took out the money I had put in media for media, I said to Jay Lippincott, if, if there's no budget here for media, then there's no, we can't do that public part of the vision statement. And so maybe this isn't the right fit. I got a media budget. And while I was there, AJN was in the news media. We were the nursing journal most frequently cited in the news media, in the public media. And so it's, it's about having a vision and being able to move consistently behind that vision. You're not always going to get your way, but are you moving in the right direction? And I think Einstein is attributed with saying vision without action is a hallucination. And that's, that is right. You can have this great vision, but if you don't put the action behind it, then uh, you're going to go nowhere. So I, I think it's having a sense of what's your vision, what are your strengths, what are your challenges, persevering, where's your source of support, who do you get support from when you falter? I have a friend, I can call her about anything and get guidance and I know she'll be, she'll be open and, and truthful with me and she'll be supportive. So I, I think those are really important, and I think it's also important. So I was president of the American Academy of Nursing, and that was something I wanted because I felt the academy was not living up to its mission around policy. And I got myself on the board. I, 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 I ran for secretary of the board so I would be on the executive committee, which has more power than a regular board position. And then I ran for president-elect, and, and then you're automatically president. But it was all around ramping up. Uh, the, it was not just to be the president of the academy. I don't need to just be the president of the academy. It was to, to advance nursing's role in policy at a time when we have to be leaders in that sphere. Policies are being set that are leaving us behind. So we have to step up and be willing to step up. I'm, I'm now serving on two boards because we've been challenged by the Future of Nursing Report to step up and serve on boards. And I'm doing that, and it's a heavy lift. But you know what? I'm a good board member. And they, they like, I've, and, and nurses do. We come prepared. We do the networking, and you have to do the give and get. You have to go get the money and give some money. And uh, I, I, we've, we've, we've got to be willing to step up and to um, do what needs to be done. Since you brought up the, the, the content of policy, like I didn't really get into policy, I think, till my PhD program. Um, and, and, I, and I try to bring some of that to my undergraduate and graduate work. But how do we make policy uh, more of a, of a standalone or, or integrated? I don't want to call it standalone, integrated into uh, 
curriculum. So it becomes a bigger part of what nursing looks at as opposed to just the bedside or the direct patient care. Because um, I try to connect the direct patient care with policies and, you know, whether it's community policies, state policies, national policies. Um, how do you think uh, or what's your thoughts around uh, integrating policy more with uh, curriculum? Well, we have to do it. Uh, and certainly the uh, American Association of Colleges of Nursing's essentials of nursing, the essentials for the curriculum at all levels, do speak to policy. And so um, schools of nursing should be integrating policy more. So I, I, we now have the eighth edition of my book, Policy, Politics, Policy and Politics in Nursing and Healthcare. And we're actually working on a document on how to use this across programs and across curricula. So my belief is that's a book should be foundational. Any policy book should be foundational. But because we, we address in our book, we also address poli policy and politics in the workplace. So it, it can be foundational in the sense of you start with issues and trends and look at it, uh, some of the issues in the book around nursing, nurse, uh, nursing uh, trends and issues. And you could even do use the chapter on history for a history course. And when you get to med surge, the idea of policy and politics in the workplace, there's lots of examples on that. Um, when you get to leadership, the idea of the role of policy as leaders, what we have to know to be able to be leaders in that policy sphere. You know, I, I, I like to, to say to people, when you're talking about teaching, about care of a patient who's had a brain tumor and is having difficulty swallowing, and you're going to do what? You're going to really take the time to feed them very slowly and spend the time with them so they don't need the feeding tube? Or because staffing is short, you're just going to insert a, a feeding tube into this patient? Those are political and policy decisions. Staffing and the funding of hospitals and how much, what the, what the funding can go for. Those are policy matters. They are political matters. And if, if we say we want more staffing, then what do we need to do to help hospitals understand that and be able to do it? You, you have to look at how healthcare is paid for and what kind of money is coming in the door. And you have to look at what are the choices that hospitals are making about how to spend their money. And that takes you to, well, who's on the board and who's guiding that and who's the CEO? And why are they in that seat? Why isn't it a nurse who's CEO who understands the impact of the budget on patient care? So for us to not pay attention to policies that say, you know, it's okay to have three patients in an intensive care unit um, is, is the, the, you know, it's, if, if we're not paying attention, then we're setting ourselves up for burnout, for moral distress, for patients dying. We know that. We know staffing is key to patients doing better and not dying or having more comorbidities. So um, I would say if you're not paying attention to policy and the political context of policy, you're saying that you want others to make decisions for how you will live your life and how you will live your work life and the kind of care that you're going to be able to provide. And that's a, that's a really great point, um, especially when it comes to uh, like the level of policy and how actually I was uh, in my last podcast, I was talking to Dr. Grant, the uh, president of the ANA, and he had mentioned how nursing is kind of jumbled in with all the, you know, other things and aren't, isn't their services are not charged separately. They're part of like housekeeping and everything else. So 
Uh, so great, great point on that. Uh, so thank you for bringing that up. Um, uh, anything else? Uh, thank you. By, by the way, thank you. You have some great uh, words of wisdom throughout this entire uh, talk that we've had. Um, anything else you'd like to share with, uh, with uh, the nursing world or anybody else that's listening? So I, I, I think I would, like, I would like to encourage your students to be bold. And bold doesn't mean you're being foolish. It means you're informed. You're weighing the risks and the benefits of taking certain actions. You're willing to take certain risks. And you're willing to recognize that being political does not mean you're silent when the world needs your voice. We need nurses to use their voices in thoughtful ways and on issues that matter. And so I want to encourage all of your students and nurses everywhere to think about how can you be more bold? What's, what matters to you most? What's most important to you? And how can you be thoughtfully bolder around that issue? And, and, you know, work with colleagues, bounce ideas off colleagues. This is not the time to be the wallflower. It's not the time to be silent. It's, and I'm hoping this younger generation really challenges the rest of us. And I think the rest of us who are older have to step aside and make way and open doors for the younger generation. I'm tired of, of my generation continuing to grab opportunities that really should be for the next generation of leaders. And so find yourself a mentor who will open doors for you. Ask them to open those doors for you. Uh, and, and be prepared to step up and to speak out thoughtfully and knowledgeably. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm really hopeful about this next generation. And uh, I'm very proud to be a part of this profession. Well, Dr. Mason, thank you so much for your time. Uh, greatly appreciate you being on the show. Uh, you have been listening to the RN Mentor Podcast, and I wish you a safe and happy rest of your week. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.